Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Bending Boundaries, an episode that features the topic of the international student experience. Did we have a good break, everyone? Excellent. Yeah. Okay, very nice. So the next thing I was thinking would be very exciting to talk about is the topic on being multilingual and having intercultural communication skills. So I think this is something that you both can relate to. Like for me personally, English is my third language. And sometimes, especially when it comes to speaking to senior academics or in front of a wider audience, for example, at a conference, I feel that I become hyper aware of my accent. For example, the V's and W's that I always tend to confuse. Um, and I think this comes from having to code switch in your mind. So, you know, I'm translating from like Turkish to German to English sometimes, especially when it comes to more difficult words. And I feel like as, as a woman already, or as women of color, we already code switch the way we present ourselves, or even as people of color, the way we dress, the way we carry, carry ourselves in a room. Um, and I feel that happens also to my language. I try to speak in an academic way. I think, and that is in order to, again, to have this feeling of to belong and not to be judged. And um, I feel like in all reality, we should have so much confidence. Like what a skill to be multilingual. What are your feelings when it comes to this, when it comes to writing in academia, speaking in academia? I think, I think personally, I have been quite lucky because um, my, my schooling when I was young was in a British school. So, you know, I think at this point, the code switch is unconscious. You know, mm. like I, I, someone asked me this question that when you speak in English, do you think in Bengali and then do you translate it to English? But I don't think that happens. I think it's just like unconscious. So when I'm speaking in English, I'm thinking in English. When I'm speaking in Bengali, I'm thinking in Bengali. So maybe it's just a habit. So um yeah but I do sometimes I feel like um at, at this point sometimes you know when I'm overwhelmed it, it might be difficult for me to sort of uh speak in a particular language so sometimes there are phrases which I know in Bengali I don't know how to say it in English but it can also happen the other way <laughs> so yeah, but because of the fact that when I was young, I, I, I was in a British school, that that is one thing I'm quite grateful about, that I had that ability, you know, to listen to English, speak in English, and write in English for a long period of time. So that was one thing that um, worked for me, even mm -hmm. though I'm, I'm an international student. Yeah. And how many languages do you speak, Shreya? Three. I speak three really? languages. Yeah. So I yeah. speak Bengali. I speak Hindi because uh, in, in Bangladesh, you grow up watching Indian shows. So at a very young <laughs> age, you know, as a baby, you're subjected to that language. So you automatically learn it. So I can speak. I don't write. I cannot write or read Hindi. I can speak it and English. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Three languages. So, uh, but yeah, I think it's just because I've been living abroad for so long. It's important to be able to nurture those language skills because it's very easy to forget, especially as you grow older. I think your brain can only handle so many, so much information, and uh, 
if you're just writing so much in academic language, at one point you start speaking in ac academic language. So like in masters, when we were working on our thesis, I remember I was joking with my friends because we were saying like, oh, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, using these kind of words. So I think it's important for us to nurture our, as Ibu said, these multilingual uh, abilities because it is actually very important to be able to be in touch with your culture and be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Alicia, what are your like thoughts and feelings about this? Yeah, similar to Shreya, you know, my parents, like they really, really, really tried hard to send us over in India to an English medium school. So like I went to a convent school and back then, you know, people used to, you know, uh, if you would get late, they would close the, the main gate and then, you know, you would have to wait till the whole morning assembly was done. And what people used to do it, and my dad would do it as well. He would just like throw us over the fence. So we would make it in time to cook because like, you know, because the principal could just send you home and they couldn't really afford that because no one would be home, you know. So luckily my English language skills weren't that bad. But I never, I was aware of the accenting and whatnot, you know. So when I got to Ireland, you know, my English wasn't that bad. And I think especially at that time, around 2006, there was that, especially with older generation, the 60s and 70s, there was, I'm not saying in general Ireland, but I have faced somewhat racism, you know, in terms of that, you know, the accent and stuff, you know, I still do, you know, and now it's more from my Irish accent. So I, I don't even understand, you know, about that. You know? And uh, I think in terms of thinking process, I think because I speak three languages, I speak English, Hindi and Punjabi, but I don't really read or write Punjabi. I can a bit, but not that much. I moved to Ireland when I was start to learn the language, so I can still understand it and speak it. Uh, so in terms of code switching, I have no idea. My my mind is a mess. I'm just in and out of, because <laughs> the city I grew up in, in Chandigarh, is like a capital of two different like states, you know. So one state speaks Hindi, the other speaks Punjabi. And this is like a government city where all the head, you know, all the offices are. So everyone just speaks in all three of the language, English, Hindi, and Punjabi. So when you're speaking at home, we just switch all the time since they're kids, I suppose, you know? And then when we got to Ireland, it, English became more ingrained. So when I'm talking to my dad or something, they'll be talking to me in Hindi, and then they'll just switch to Punjabi, and they just naturally assume that I'm understanding what they're saying, you know? Which, which I do, you know? So I think, I, I just find it interesting when I came to Ireland, and Ibu mentioned in part one about not looking like I'm Irish, you know? And, you know, when people find out, because they can't really pinpoint where my accent is from, which, to be honest, I dial my accent down a lot because, you know, Ibru has seen me with my Irish friend and my Irish accent really flares up and it's very, uh, very strong, you know? So uh, I think I think that's just the ambiguity always gets people, you know, and in terms of being um, nervous about talking in front of people, I, I don't, you know? I don't really pay attention to that because I'm like, I talk so fast that I just have to be mindful of if I'm being comprehensible. So I don't know, it's a really interesting uh, thing that Shreya um, said mm -hmm. about code switching. Like, I don't really pay attention to it as much, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think as someone who perhaps did not attend like early English classes mm -hmm. growing up, you know, I think I am hyper aware of it also because 
and you can relate to this, especially I think with um, um, Hindi and Punjabi, it's a very complex grammatical system. And so is Turkish. It is such a metaphorical language. Um, and I think English compared to that is a very simplistic language. And I don't say this um, to with any bad connotation. I'm just saying it as it is. If you look at different grammatical systems, you know, I also know, for example, Finnish is a, has a very complex grammatical system and so does German. And, um, you know, I remember my dad and I, when he first came to Germany, we would go to German school together. <laughs> so I would like do my homework with him together. And, you know, because he had to go to work and stuff, he still like his German is not very good. And it's just the way it is coming from like, you know, a, a very much working class uh, background. Um, but again, like I am hyper aware of it. And I think it also has to do with experiences at conferences. So I remember going to this one conference and um, I said the word heteronormative. That's how I pronounced it. And the lady is like, you mean heteronormative? And I was like, uh, and then I got so anxious. I started sweating. I started getting really anxious because I'm like, how can I repeat that? I don't like, because with different languages that you speak, there is different muscles in place. And sometimes those muscles are not fully developed, but also if you heard a word like said in British English like that very fast for the first time and you're being called out on it, like I was called out, which I thought was inappropriate. And that was in my first year. And, um, you know, it stuck with me. I ever since I practiced that tone and <laughs> I say heteronormative because I almost felt like I was shamed. And that's one thing like why I wanted to talk about this topic. And maybe even if it's not your own firsthand experiences, you can recall instances where that happened to people. Because I think it's really important to talk about this in a podcast that features equity and inclusion and respect and diversity. Because, um, you know, there is so much research and my bachelor's background is in linguistics that has shown that multilingual people tend to have a lot higher levels of, for example, empathy and intercultural competence. So I think when you speak multiple languages, you have, you just inevitably have such a greater appreciation for understanding different perspectives, but also for having empathy when somebody is struggling with certain words um, or feeling hyper aware of their own accent. Um, so there are so many benefits that research shows for being multilingual when it comes to like creativity and problem solving, but then being shamed like that, it stuck with me. And it's very easy for me to forget like that there's so much value in, in code, being able to code switch. So, you know, I just wanted to share that because I do know that my experience is not a unique one. Can I add to that? Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, can I add to that, Ibu? You know, I have noticed that I think accent is also 
a form of privilege and uh, marginalization, how you sound that based on that people treat you different and also how you look, because if I look like this, okay, first of all, people get confused, right? So initially when they see me, they might think I'm Indian, Mexican, Middle Eastern, like it's a spectrum. So they're not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's ambiguous. And when I talk, they're like, oh, are you American? Because I sound like I have a little bit of American. So they're very confused. Like, where is this person from, you know? and I think when they see someone foreign and they hear them speak in a certain way of English, I think based on that, they decide how to treat them. Because if they're speaking in like a thick accent or some in, in a way like that, they're like, oh, they would like trying to pinpoint and correct their grammar, you know, be mean. But if they sound more like different, like fluent English, they're like, oh, okay, then they're nicer. I have noticed that. I've actually noticed that first time. So that's why I'm saying that it's a form of privileging and marginalization because I think obviously the first impression you make is how you look. But yeah. if you sound a certain way, people do tend to change how they behave towards you. So it is really yeah. important, as you said, that uh, sometimes people just are like petty and they like say, oh, this is not this is not how it's pronounced. I've heard like people at the border control, you know, like mm -hmm. instead of saying, I think in the UK it's data science and in the US it's data science. So yeah, data. if someone says yeah. that, oh, I'm doing data science, and they're like, sorry, can you speak in English? Because in the UK it's data science, right? And the accent might not be an American accent, it's a foreigner saying data science so then they would be like oh you don't know how to speak English properly can you speak in English so that's a bit um it's a bit rude because you are speaking in English but just because the accent doesn't subscribe to their idea of what this accent should sound like they would just treat you different yeah and it comes with like being taken seriously or as a legit academic or um professional right mm -hmm. so I think that's why I am hyper aware and I focus to to speak English to the best of my ability fluently. Um, Alicia, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all of that because, you know, um, uh, being Indian, you know, like I constantly grew up with people saying, oh, that's, you're confusing your W's and V's, you know, W and V's. And at one stage, I just said, listen, I don't care. <laughs> you know, like what difference does that make? You know, like Ibu pointed out, you know, how does that contribute, you know, saying a certain way at that given moment to the content of what she's saying? Or similar to what I'm saying, it's like, you're not fixated, you're fixated on me pronouncing or saying something correctly instead of the content of what I'm trying to say. So therefore you're not listening to me at all. You know, and I think it, it's much more prevalent in the sense of performativity. You know, you have to dress a certain way, you have to talk a certain certain way, you know, for example, when I used to work at the airport, you know, I remember because I'd done my master's so I was waiting to go into my other program. And I was just talking to some person who had been working there for many years, maybe almost two decades. You know, and she just, just looked at me and she said, I don't even know half the time what you're saying, you know, because the, not in terms of she can understand me, but the complexity of my words, you know. So it's the other way around, not in the sense of you can understand my accent, but then now my language was too complex. You know, mm -hmm. so I thought that was a very interesting notion of how if my language wasn't complex and I had the accent, like Sharia said, then you're not being, you know, 
acknowledged. But then here is both, then there is nothing to really criticize. And then you're still on Steam, you know, so it's like, well, you know, your, your language is too complex, you know. But I, I think, yeah, I agree with that. I think, and I do notice that with a lot of, um, you know, going back to what Ibu said, you know, when you walk as a migrant student, as a PhD student, you walk into this room, and I was thinking about this, like, you're not Hebrew, I'm not Alicia in that room, you know, I'm also a representative of my community. Because yeah. if, if I do anything wrong, it's not that I'm not a good person or whatever, it's like these people, you know, mm. it automatically becomes that so you constantly are aware of that you know and i don't know if that's your experience but i am you know growing up especially as a migrant person you know uh, and i've experienced this you know in my own school in secondary school where my brother was 14 15 when he joined the school and he was hailed as this perfect student because he was nice and courteous and whatnot, you know, the typical, you know, the migrant, you know, thankful for this opportunity. Whereas I came in, I was already in the country for nearly two, three years. So I was just being normal, you know, and I was deemed as like problematic and contrasting of like, oh, why can't you be more like your brother? It's like, what do we want out of it? So I think, I think going back to the language point is the performativity as well. You know, you have to be comprehensible, you know, which is you tragic, you know. Yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing that. And Alita, you just mentioned something so crucial. Like when you're from South Asia or a Middle Eastern country, or you know, even North African and many other like just non-white population, we come from um countries where we have very much this collectivistic sense of community, society, family. Like what you do reflects what your family does. So you're happy, your family is happy. You're in pain, your family is pain. And you do something that may not be regarded as um, an achievement that's also reflects simultaneously like this notion of failure for your community. Like we present something much more than just ourselves. And it's something, again, I think there needs to be shed awareness on this. And, um, you know, people say, well, you live your life for you. Yes, that is true to a certain extent. But again, you can't just shake off where you come from. And, and you shouldn't. There is so much value in that as well, coming from a collectivistic society. Um, but I think one thing I just want to give ourselves and our audience in this regard is I think it's so important to just really embrace being multilingual and coming from a country that is not a, a Western country. Because, you know, I think being multilingual, it allows us to communicate with a much wider audience. Again, because there's the sensitivity. Um, and also it can like facilitate engagement with, again, a research community back in our home countries, right? Again, this collectivistic sense of what we're doing and also allow for culturally sensitive research impact. And I, I just want to leave that out there as like, this is it's such a gift to be multilingual. 
you know, even though there are so many challenges that we all talked about right now, but I also think, you know, these challenges are part of, challenges are always part of beautiful things mm -hmm. as well. So I think that's just important to maybe give our audience. But one thing that struck me, you know, Shreya, you said, for example, people saying, can you repeat that in English again? Although it's in English, right? So this leads me to my last point for today's episode, which is mental health. Because these kind of triggering arguments um, have such an impact on our mental health, and especially the mental health of an international PhD student. Because support looks very different, if it is even in place. So during this episode, I want to very much challenge the idea that everyone is granted and guaranteed mental health by highlighting our lived experiences of being international and immigrant PhD students. So I think while we, or while the greater society believes that mental health is a basic human need, the reality is that in today's society, stigma, lack of resources, systemic barriers, particularly for international individuals can make it very difficult to access the care and support that is needed in academia. And I think there are many multiple reasons why it's more challenging for international and non-white PhD students to voice their mental health problems. You know, again, I mentioned stigma, with that comes shame. But I think many cultures also view mental health issues as taboo. Um, and so I think that way we may feel more reluctant to, to reach out for help or seek help. Um, and I think one thing that I've been processing through is not regarding my mental health concerns as a weakness or incompetence, but oftentimes you tend to confuse these things. So what are your experiences with mental health during the PhD journey? And um, yeah, what are the challenges that you have encountered and what has worked for you to like overcome these challenges? I think it's kind of a cyclical process for me uh, in the PhD because I think um, the PhD journey is quite long, right? Um, and most of the times we're like reading and there is no like specific marker that you have achieved something, you know? Uh, so I'm the kind of person who needs to have like, um, who needs to see outcomes. And it's not always easy to see it while you're doing a PhD because the only outcome is when you produce a final dissertation and that's like, for me two and a half years away so sometimes that you know takes a lot of toll on me I, I don't I sometimes feel like am I being productive enough you know would I be able to finish my PhD on time am I devoting my energy in doing the right things because sometimes you're just you need to read a lot but you, you don't know if that's going to materialize in something on top of that uh, in the UK the weather can be quite gray in Manchester specifically you know we, we experience long periods of gray weather so that affects me a lot so in those periods I feel really low I don't feel like you know working I just feel like sleeping um so in those instances I think it's really important to like reach out to your family or friends and you know talk to them like just express that I'm not feeling good I'm feeling low as you said it can be stigmatized but I think it's important to say it that 
I am feeling low. I remember in one of the previous supervisor meetings when my supervisor asked, how are you doing? I told her I, I feel low today, you know? So I think it's important to be able to just say it. I think it's also important to build your own community. Uh, it can be quite challenging, especially if you're an international student to find like a sense of community there. But um, I, I would encourage different international students like current or perspective to find people who you relate to and just be able to go out for a walk with them, talk to them, and also do things that make you happy. Because when we're doing a PhD, sometimes we feel like, oh, I need to work, you know, I, I, I shouldn't take a break. But the break is important. It's important to prioritize your happiness, your mental health, because that in turn would enable you to be productive. So when I feel like I'm feeling low, I try to call people, I try to watch something, I go out for a walk, you know, order something nice or cook something nice and maybe go out with a friend. It's just important to just reach out to people or or, or if I can really be disciplined, go to the gym, which is um, it's good practice if you can do that. So I think it's very mm -hmm. important to be to have that awareness and not feel guilty for feeling low because it's just part of the process. You will feel low because you're a human being and you cannot always be like productive and just do things all the time. Sometimes it's okay to not be productive. Sometimes it's okay not to do anything. Sometimes it's okay to feel low. So I think be kind to yourself. Realize that you are doing the best you can. And um, if, if you can't continue, it's your body's telling you something. You need to take a break and just chill for sometimes because I think because we conceive the PhD as something that is like so many things to do, right? It can be very overwhelming. So sometimes it's just important to take a break, take a step back and just prioritize that my mental health is more important than, you know, working at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with Shreya on this point. I think with me, something similar, you know, uh, I did grow up in a culture, especially in India, and then going into Ireland, where I've been like a joint family, so I've been around people. So when I moved to uh, the UK, you know, I was, uh, interestingly, you know, we were talking about having a guarantor if you need a visa, you know, I I managed to find a house, you know, just like advertisers for PhDs and master's students, you know, and and I asked them what the requirements, they just asked you know, for a 200 pound deposit. And I was like, oh, that's not bad, I guess, you know? So I applied for it and it was such a horrible experience, you know? And I was stuck in the contract for like nine months. And, you know, luckily, you know, Ibru's a good friend of mine, you know? So uh, she's always there when I need help. But I think me personally, when I moved towards this my first time moving away from family, you know, and then trying to navigate, you know, because as an international student, it's not just your research that's ambiguous. You know, you don't, especially, you know, I remember like my third week in the country, I nearly got into a fight on campus with a total stranger, you know. And in that moment, you know, obviously I wasn't going to do anything, but if something had happened, I couldn't call any, anyone, you know, if I was in hospital for any reason, you know. And there's that aspect of safety, you know, you don't have anyone that you can ring, you know, there's no sense of family, of course, you know, or friends, you know, you're trying to, there's so many 
social factors to it as well that you have to account for, you know, and it does impact your mental health. And, you know, and as much as you want to create this, you know, guard or facade of, you know, that everything's fine, eventually it, it's not, you know, you eventually do break down because the nature of PhD is, and it, unfortunately, you know, it impacts our personalities or, or not personality, but our character. We're hypercritical of everything, you know, because that's our field. We have to constantly do that, you know. So I think with me personally, there's events that happened last year around this time, you know, and made me reflect on my own mental health. And I realized that, you know, there's something not right here. And over the summer, you know, I start to go in a spiral and realize that there's something really not right, you know. So I went into the counseling services, which is a good thing that the University of uh, Liverpool provides, you know, and it's free and you just, you can make an appointment and they'll listen to you and it's free, you know, and they can guide you to the right places. And I went through that process and I realized that, wow, you know, just talking, you know, because I went there with a very hostile mindset because I've had my issues for a decade or so, but, you know, growing up in Ireland, you know, you have to go, you can't go to the hospital, you know, you have to go to the GP, you know, and then the GP will cost you maybe 50, 60 euros, you know, for a visit. So you only go to the GP when it's something really, really dire, like, you know, emergency, you know, the mental health is something that's like, oh no, it's okay, you know, just like exercise or whatnot, you know. So, you know, when I went to my counselor, you know, she pointed out things, you know, she's an amazing person, you know, shout out to my counselor, you know, and, you know, she guided me in the certain directions. And, you know, I had to just tell my uh, supervisor, my secondary supervisor, especially because much closer to him, I told him like, this is, you know, it's impacting me. And I don't know, you know, what to do about it, you know, because it's impacting my research. And, you know, I got the right support, you know, and at the moment, you know, just acknowledging that, you know, just realize that it is an issue that does impact my research, you know, and you just have to be honest about it, you know, and it's quite tough, especially coming from, for me, for the South Asian community, like it's so difficult to even acknowledge that that's something in your mind is an issue, you know, yeah. like that doesn't even exist, you know. So I think, going back to the mental health aspect, you know, you just have to be open, you know, about it, you know, with my family members now and just, I'm open about it. I know there can be consequences, especially like from, from the culture that I come from, you know. I don't know how people are going to react, but I have to also understand that I can't do anything about the reaction, you know. Like, I have to take care of myself. And as a PhD student, you have to understand that, that that's the nature of a field, you know, and we have to be more forgiving and more generous towards ourselves, you know. There might be days when I'm literally in the office, someone just made a joke when the admin people that they want to say hi to me and they knocked on my door and I was passed out, you know, just sleeping. And everyone knows that about me. I just take naps all the time because that's my process, you know. It, I, you know, I can't sit down and read for five hours, you know. So just, just be considerate of that, you know, especially if you're going to apply to a PhD program. Also consider these external factors just outside of your research that you have to account for, you know, because mental health is important, yeah. Thank you so much. You know, you both have talked about like the challenges you face, but also what worked for you, you know, from exercise to actually reaching out to friends and sharing your thoughts and feelings and like also seeking counseling. And one thing, Alicia, you mentioned is that it does not exist in certain cultures. 
this like mental illness, right? And I think one thing I want to shed light on in this episode is the language barrier. So in certain languages, there is not a direct translation for mental health. And that this is what makes it so difficult to articulate and understand our own emotion, but also for other people to understand what we're going through. Again, coming back to this is we we are researching in a country that is not our home country. Bureaucracy works differently here. Everything is just different here. Um, our friends and family, chances are, are very far away. On most days, we only have our own company because, again, a PhD is done in solitude and it's very easy to get caught up in your own mind and head, um, talking to yourself, talking with your research, through your research. But there needs to be something other in place that is not your research so that you can actually function as a human being, right? And um, one thing I've struggled with, um, I've mentioned it in the previous episode, as well as this feeling of loneliness. And it doesn't matter by how many people I'm surrounded with. It's the feeling of, I feel lonely in my sadness. I feel lonely in my solitude. I even feel lonely in my happiness. Because it's like, oh, you know, once a year, my friends are coming to visit me from Sweden. And it's like, you this kind of happiness, sharing it with someone is again, so difficult. And you don't want to have to justify yourself over and over again. But I do think that's why it makes it so important to be open with your supervisors as well. And also perhaps other staff, because your experiences are different than the experiences of a home student. And I'm not trying to compare or invalidate one pain over the other. It's just different. It's different. It's both valid, but different. And I think um, in some cases, there might not be enough awareness on like counseling services for international PhD students or international PhD students don't know how to access them due to language barriers, you know, again, or cultural differences. And um, so I think with that in mind, how do you think universities can foster more compassion and support in this regard? I was just, I was just going to say, you know, uh, sharing experiences, you know, or highlighting voices of people who have gone through something like that, you know, who are culturally different, you know, um, perhaps international students that do, you know, obviously, you know, you can't infringe on people's privacy, not saying that privacy and confidentiality, but people who volunteer for this, you know, because, you know, um, I had friends, you know, like, you know, Ibru and I talk about this all the time, you know, that would encourage me to do this, you know, and it took me, took me months, to be honest, I'm not going to lie about it, you know, to finally get the help that I needed, because the implications of it is so much for me, you know, because it's just my experience, you know, of, um, you know, just growing up, you know, or now, you know, listening to it, you know, every time I talk to my cousin, they're like, oh, you know, they do say, you know, people who like do PhDs and a professor, they just lost their mind, you know, and it, you know, they say in a humorous way, but the connotations of it is like, well, if they're saying something about this, you know, what happens when they realize something, you know, like I am seeking help or I'm on medication, you know, that stigma is there, but I think enabling comfortability is through shared experience, you know, 
like I would be happy to talk to someone about it. And I always do, you know, I do say that to people that there is no shame in it, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to realize that cultural expectations do matter, but you also have to come for your help. There'll be no point if you burn out in the end, you know, as much you have to kind of encourage that. Maybe I think my suggestion would be to have more people, you know, with shared experiences that can relate to it, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with Alicia that it would be good to have these kind of sessions. Um, we we try to do that, you know, here in Manchester. Sometimes we organize like PhD socials, you know, where mm-hmm. PhD students can come together and just like share their experiences with each other. Not sometimes it's good to socialize because, as Ifer said, it is quite a lonely experience. Most of the time, you're working by yourself. You're in your research, you're sort of in your world. So. Yeah, having these kind of socials, like these kind of coffee meets, breakfast meets, you know, all these things, they, they're really helpful. I think universities do try to incorporate that. But um, yeah, I think that the experience of international students are quite different. So uh, it would be good to have like resources specific to international students. I, I think in most universities, there there is an international society. So mm-hmm. I think that helps, you know, if you uh, join those international society socials, because you can meet like people from other countries and that usually helps because most likely they're going through something similar to you. Um, so yeah, just surround yourself with people who can relate and uh, just it's important to join those socials because sometimes when we're in that state, we don't want to do that. You know, we don't mm-hmm. want to like leave our space. So it's really important to share and just um, maybe, I don't know, have like a buddy who can check up on you. You know, I think the university probably has those kind of buddy schemes. I don't know. I don't think they have it specifically for PhD students. I think it's more targeted towards undergrads, but maybe something more specific for PhD students where a buddy will check up on you. And if, um, yeah, then they will know that you're not feeling well enough and they might encourage you that hey let's go out for a coffee hey why don't we go to this activity together i think that would be helpful and also you know be honest with your supervisors as both alicia and Ibra mentioned because at the end of the day you do see them more and they're they're also sort of responsible for you since you're an international student so yeah just Mm -hmm. talk about it yeah yeah i think i agree with both of you i think you know, maybe establishing support groups that are labeled as mental health mm. support groups to already yeah. take away the stigma, just put the word out there. There's nothing wrong with that word, right? I think that way universities can, yeah, just create, Shreya, as you said, um, mentoring programs um, specifically for international students. And then through these programs, you can come together with other people that are going through the exact same thing. Um, to talk about like, you know, emotional support, academic, or even like career related matters in your final year. That's another like anxiety of like looking for a job and stuff and to, to navigate, you know, also like cultural differences and reconcile some things that, you know, make things rather challenging. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I know this is a very uh, we're ending this podcast on a very personal note, but I really appreciate your vulnerability in this. 
So with that being said, what are some, or like if we were to have one or two key takeaways from this episode, what would it be? I think for me, the key takeaway is that we have sort of like a shared experience, you know, the three of us mentioned things that somehow we could relate to. So it made me feel that as as international students, you know, we are essentially part of a community, even though we might not be conscious about it, but there's sort of like a shared experience uh, that you can relate to. And yeah, it just makes me feel like, okay, you know, I'm not going through anything that's unusual or weird because many people go through that even though we are you know we have different backgrounds we come from different countries we have different upbringings but we still sort of have a shared experience yeah yeah i would just say going back to what ibu said earlier on just reach out you know in any in any sense if you're applying for a phd you think someone's interesting you want to work with them like a lecturer, professor, just reach out, just send them an email, a cold call. You have no idea what, you know, where, like I've, I've sent so many cold, like emails I sent to professor in MIT and then they would just come back saying all the best to your project. And sometimes that's all you need because you're like, oh, wow, this person thinks that, you know, maybe my proposal isn't that bad, you know? So just, just take a chance. You just never know, you know? Uh, what opportunity you might get yeah amazing thank you both I think for me there's like two things like we talked about rejection right and we talked openly about it and I noticed that you know perhaps by openly talking about rejection we can take the stigma out from this term rejection and the lived experience of it and that way we can help each other and others cope better with the emotional toll it takes um and also like develop this notion of resilience because that is really needed in academia, doing a PhD because rejection will be a part of that. And the other thing is, you know, you both in one way or another said that it's so important to prioritize our mental health because without mental health, there is not gonna be a PhD journey. So I think what universities, what we need from universities is tools to talk about it in the first place so we can break the silence around it. Um, and that way, if we break the stigma around mental health, we can work towards creating a more inclusive and supportive environment for PhD students, regardless of our background, our nationality, the kind of passport we hold. So thank you so much to you both for being on this episode. I very much enjoyed listening to your experiences, but also, you know, prospective advice you might have for other PhD students. And thank you, everyone else, for listening to this episode of Bending Boundaries, where we shared our personal experiences as international and immigrant PhD students. We hope that our insights were helpful and informative to those who may be facing similar challenges. Remember, everyone's journey is different and what worked for us may not necessarily work for you. However, we do encourage you to reach out and connect with others who understand what you're going through and to seek out resources and support that can help you overcome the obstacles that you may encounter. Don't forget to subscribe to our Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership sponsored podcast for more stories and insights from fellow PhD students. 
And if you would like to further engage with us and share your own experiences, you can find us here on Spotify under Bending Boundaries, on Twitter at Bending Bound Pod, and on Instagram at Bending Boundaries Podcast. And if you have any queries, please do not hesitate to send us an email at bendingboundariespod at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Bending Boundaries.